Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I want to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What have you not? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to oh, now. I want down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you shiny man? <laughs> It was a Premier League season that delivered new champions, new superstars, and a new sense of excitement. But on the final day, the last man standing dominating the Stamford Bridge turf that he's made his own in the last two decades was John Terry. Oh, Murphy Ken here at the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Hi, Hi guys. Hello there, Unvi. Chelsea finished out their season with a one-all draw against the new champions, Leicester. After which, Terry took to the middle of the pitch, microphone in hand, to address his adoring fans. I was watching this in Sky Sports and the presenter, Ed Chamberlain, Breathlessly through to this piece, you got you know you got that inkling that he had just got a word in his ear from his producer, John Terry speaking on the pitch. Let's cut there live. Yeah, this is going to be the farewell. Oh this yeah, this is incredible. That, that's certainly what Ed Chamberlain wondered aloud if this was going to be John Terry's farewell speech. But it wasn't, Ed. It very much wasn't. On, on, on a personal note, I'd like to thank everyone as well because you know this season's been tough for me, uh, very emotional, and and the support over recent weeks. Same thing I want to be. I've said I've said for a very long time I want to be here for, for the rest of my career. I want to finish my career here. So we have a few days and, and we'll be speaking to the club and listen, I want to stay. The club know that, the fans know that. Yeah, just in case you couldn't make out what the fans were chanting, it was we want you to stay. They were screaming at John Terry, who Heartily agreed with this, <laughs> this sentiment as Roman Abr- Brambridge broke his shite laughing in the stands. But I, I, th- I thought yeah. this was supposed to be the goodbye. That was the whole idea. That's why he well, had why, a- why was there no other player out there talking yeah. to the fans? Yeah. Club uh, captain, I guess. Well, I, <laughs> I mean, Brambridge was obviously uh, smiling and, and applauding 
But no, he was actually laughing quite quite loudly. I, I yeah. didn't know quite what to make of that, but he found it very funny. Maybe he found maybe he just found it hilarious. I haven't seen this sort of insolence in years. <laughs> <laughs> Does this, this is how my operation runs. <laughs> Does this guy seriously not understand how this... I mean, he's been here so long and he doesn't understand how this club is structured at all. You know, yeah. he thanked everybody apart from Abramovich. Yeah. <laughs> oh, did he not even mention him? No, he didn't. I was, I was waiting for him to to say thanks to Roman for everything he's done for the, cl- uh, the club. And uh, Also, there is a one-year contract on the table. I don't know how long John Terry's career... How long I'm John not Terry's sure career. Yeah, how on the table that is, to be honest. I mean, the club put that out there. Doesn't necessarily mean it's the case. I think they call it brinksmanship, Murph. I hate to break it to you that sometimes clubs and players say things they don't necessarily mean. Well, I, th- I, I don't think that Chelsea would not actually offer a contract that they'd. S- I mean, maybe no, they'd but offer no, a horrible be, yeah, contract that, that's, that's for like sorry, ten grand a sorry, week. That's so. the point. Yeah, I mean, it could if, be a terrible but, contract. But I mean, yeah, if he yeah. wants to stay, then yeah. how much money do you want, John? It's not about you know, money. You John, love the club, dream. yeah. So I mean. I, I, I think it's pretty simple, really. I mean, if you want to stay, then sure, you can sit in the bench for another year. Who, you know, who cares? It's only going to cost us five grand a week. i got to say, I loved it, though. And I don't know if you got a sense that the tears were welling up there in the eyes of John Terry. Oh, the, yeah. the, the heartfelt emotion, the expert use of the dramatic pause, allowing, allowing the fans to really get that chant going. The defiant and inspirational message that he delivered there to an enraptured audience. Does it remind you of anyone? I'm not fucking leaving! The show goes on! <laughs> this is my home! They're gonna need a fucking wrecking ball to take me out of here! They're gonna need to send in the National Guard a fucking SWAT team, cause I ain't going nowhere! See, that's the only bit John Terry is missing. Okay, maybe he couldn't have exactly copied the, the sort of hum or whatever you call that mm, that yeah. they do in that movie. But you know, there's got to, there had to be some sort of uh, a flourish to the Terry speech. I, I felt. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> yeah, no, he except he is leaving. Apparently, he's in the, they're not paying him, not offering enough money to stay. I mean, they have. It, it is obviously a bit of a political game. Chelsea clearly want John Terry to go. They would be happier if he did. Um, uh, they didn't offer him a contract in January, or at least not one that he was prepared to uh, to sign. They couldn't reach agreement on uh, on the terms uh, back in January. So the club said, "Well, you know, uh, we we there's nothing on the table for you now, right now. That could change." So John Terry, if you remember, took the initiative as he likes to do. Uh, he he was the one who announced all this. Went to the you know, he was speaking, I think, in a mix zone after one of the games and was quite, you know, spoke extensively on, on what was going on. Made sure to get his message out there first, you know, so the Chelsea supporters were all, you know, it's, oh, no, you know, I can't believe what they're doing to John Terry. Um, and then Chelsea, just before the end of the season, make this late offer of, a, of an extension, which I think we can, uh, I haven't seen the terms of their offer, but I think we can probably say that the terms aren't quite as good as the ones that he's been on. For maybe reflecting his diminished ability, it's always a bitter pill to swallow. I mean, how dare they pay him what he's worth, what he <laughs> what he's currently worth as a footballer? Yeah, Possi- to be honest, even 
the, even taking into account the gross insult of a gigantic pay reduction, they're st- probably still paying well over the odds for their third choice. Do I need to name check that movie? Seen by the Wolf of Wall Street, just in case. Uh, you just in case you haven't seen the Wolf of Wall Street. But yeah, so so they've made this late offer, and uh, so that, that they can say, "Well, we offered him a contract. You know, he decided to leave. What could we do?" Um, I think that's what Chelsea Chelsea's ideal situation is for John Terry to reject the contract and thus lose a bit of his political capital with the supporters because they can always say, well, we did offer him a contract and he wanted to leave because he, wa- he wanted money. So he does love Chelsea, but he also, lo- he also loves money. Abramovich should have brought a copy of the contract into his director's box and just started waving it as he was laughing. Just, just flash it up on the scoreboard. <laughs> yeah, yeah this, 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 this is actually what we're offering him. And uh, we all want the same thing, with one exception. Report on sport. Um, but that's Chelsea. You know, it's a it's a tricky uh, club politically. Uh, John Terry has navigated those treacherous waters uh, with distinction for, uh, as you said, over oh, nearly two decades, uh, and maybe one more year. Who knows? Um, someone who didn't last quite as long as John Terry was Carlo Ancelotti, who has got a book out, a new book uh, coming out in a few days, and the extracts of it appear in the Times today. Uh, it looks like it could be quite an interesting book. Um, these extracts uh, mainly deal with his uh, his time at Chelsea and his relationship with Roman Abramovich. And this is interesting because Carlo Ancelotti is one of the, I think, the great uh, football politicians among coaches. Anyway, he has uh, he's dealt with uh, or he's worked for Silvio Berlusconi, uh, Fiorentino Perez, um, Roman Abramovich, uh, and the. Uh, Qatar investment group that own Paris Saint-Germain. Some of the world's wealthiest and most demanding bosses. Managing up, I believe they call it these days in football. And he's able to do that, and he's able to manage down as well, because nobody has a bad word to say about Carlo Ancelotti, really, of of the players who used to play for him. Um, Roman Abramovich doesn't give interviews, uh, but it sounds as though maybe he wouldn't be so positive about Ancelotti as some of the other people we've been talking about. Uh, so he talks about how he was first approached to join Chelsea. This was they, they ended up hiring Scolari instead because apparently Ancelotti's English wasn't good enough, and Scolari's English was a uh, was not very good. So uh, maybe Ancelotti couldn't speak so well at that stage. <clears throat> Obviously, Scolari didn't last very long, so they come back for Carlo. Uh, a series of meetings. He, he says first of all that they they tried to have a secret meeting with uh, with Abramovich uh, two hours after the secret meeting. Adriano Galliani at AC Milan rang uh, Carlo Ancelotti to ask how it had gone. <laughs> uh, imagine getting that type of phone call. So, Carlo, you know, from your boss, uh, how, how's things? I hear you've just been uh, meeting Roman Abramovich. I hope, uh, hope it all went well. Um, but but Ancelotti uh, then was re- was approached again a few months later when Scolari was struggling. Uh, a series of meetings with uh, Chelsea's uh, Director of Football Operations, Mike Ford. He says, unusually for me, these discussions covered such issues as Chelsea's vision, the club's operating model, key strategic objectives, the use of data, performance modelling, managing the big players and the conditions I believed I needed to be successful. Chelsea might question me in great depth about all these matters and more. You can imagine, actually, what, what is wrong with these guys? Seriously? Well, what, I was, I was surely there is the kind of stuff you talk about when you're trying to woo a potential manager. Carlos kind of like, oh, do we need to talk about all this bullshit? You know? <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't bring a big enough binder to this meeting. Uh, it looks as though this is going to be a kind of binder sort of meeting, you know. Um, 
After I signed, Mike gave me a great deal of help to understand the staff structure, the special features of the Premier League, Chelsea's recruitment policy and the expectations of the owner, though these had already been made very clear to me. I was taken to Holland with Bruno for an intense week-long course in English, solid days from 8 in the morning till 8 in the evening. So Chelsea put him through kind of boot camp. Language boot camp. Um, and he, and he uh, came over pretty well. I mean, I remember his English was decent when he started. You know, it wasn't brilliant, but it was he could communicate. Uh, so evidently that uh, happened quite suddenly uh, for Carlo. Um, but he says, you know, when he came into the dressing room, the Chelsea players respected him at first. He says, um, when you join a club after winning two Champions Leagues, you tend to command a lot of respect from the players, but only at the beginning. This honeymoon period with the players never lasts long because immediately after that they're looking at you and asking... What can this guy do for me? Uh, things have things start off very well for Carlo at Chelsea. As he says, they win 14 of the first 16 games in all competitions. Pretty good. However, even then, there were signs that the relationship with the owner might be difficult. During that great run of games, we lost 3-1 to Wigan. It was just a blip to my mind. Something that happens in football. But Abramovich came to the training ground the next morning to demand answers. I tried to listen and not respond impulsively but maybe I should have had some answers ready for him and been more prepared. I should have recognised this as my first red flag. It was a new type of relationship for me with an owner. Even Berlusconi had not been so demanding. Even Berlusconi had not been so demanding. So that, I mean, that is an interesting piece of information. You know, Bramage coming straight down after you, you lose a, a game in the middle of a great run. He says, um, we started 2010 playing strongly in the FA Cup, but in February... Two thunderbolts hit me that would seriously affect my relationship with the Brownridge. First, we were beaten 4-2 at home by Manchester City. Do you remember that, th- that game? That was the, well, we all know what JT's like. Craig Bellamy, Carlos Tevez <laughs> ripping Chelsea to pieces. And uh, the Wayne Bridge, John Terry game where they didn't shake hands. Um, this was bad because we were outfought and tactically outthought. Um Abramovich called a 9 a.m. meeting the next day to ask what had happened. He's never happy with these thunderbolt defeats, defeats that he believes should not happen to Chelsea. The second and worst thunderbolt was our away defeat to Inter in the first leg of our Champions League tie. Inter at that time managed by Jose Mourinho, um, the previous manager of Chelsea. So uh, when we lost Inter again in the second leg, leg 1-0, I was challenged publicly by the media for the first time. The honeymoon period was well and truly over. The next day, Abramovich addressed the group, demanding answers. This was another episode which taught me how to deal with this different kind of president. Again, I chose not to meet aggression with aggression. It is not my way. I like to think through difficult times, address the problems cr- coolly and with reason. Um, when Mourinho's Inter went on to win the competition, ambition he was not able to fulfill when he was at Chelsea, it was not good for me. <laughs> uh, perhaps this was the beginning of the end, a big red flag. So he, he says something interesting here. He says... Um, This is where building strong relationships comes into play. The players knew that the owner was on my case and they felt they had let me down. They began playing for me. They felt that they owed me and they responded brilliantly. So Chelsea, if you remember, went on to win the double that season. They set a goal-scoring record in the Premier League. They were winning games 7-0 and 8-0. Played pretty impressive football. Um, But the fact is that every time they lost the game, which is going to happen to every team, Suddenly, Bramwich is down there going, what's going on? What's going on? When Ancelotti says that he addressed, Bramwich came to address the group, I assume he's talking about the management and leadership group. Not the, he's, he's hardly ripping... No, the, the, no, the players. It sounds the like players. He's, so he's ripping, essentially, the players and management all in one go. Mm, mm. Um, That's he, not right. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of these things. Uh, he talks about uh, coming back um, into um, the, the next season. 
Uh, some of the older players, such as Michael Ballack, weren't offered new contracts. I was asked to promote five young academy graduate players into the 25-man squad, which I did. We won the first game of the new season 6-0, but I was still summoned to Ramage's house that night to receive a dressing down for the performance. <laughs> Another red flag. Uh, we lost Liverpool 2-0. Uh, this is in November. My assistant Ray Wilkins was fired days later. Another lesson learned. I could have fought harder, but I knew that it was a done deal. So they then make Michael Emanalo his assistant manager. He says, I don't need an assistant manager. I've actually already got two. Bruno Clements, uh, uh, or uh, sorry, Bruno de Michaelis and Paul Clements. Mm-hmm. Um, but they say, no, you, we, we want Michael to be on board. And he says, Emanalo wasn't, wasn't comfortable. He'd never done it before. Players thought he was a scout and he's the assistant. What's going on? Um, we made uh, two marquee signings which lifted spirits but not for long. This is Torres and David Luiz uh, who signed in, in January that year but Torres wasn't on his best. So they get to, they, they're drawn against Man United in the Champions League quarterfinal. Do you remember that? Um, the night before the second leg Abramovich addressed the players telling them that they had to win or there would be huge changes to the team. He told me individually that if we lost I was not to bother coming back to work. I wasn't sure if he was serious. We lost and I did go back to work though I felt like a dead man walking. Again, I suppose I could have confronted the owner, but it seemed pointless. Now, I think this is this is really interesting because it just shows the way in which it becomes really quite impossible for any Chelsea manager. Yeah. You know, how, how do you imagine, and maybe it's because his book is there under the mic stand. We use his book, Leading, as a mic stand. It's pretty much all that book is good for. It does lift the, the mic up uh, an inch or two. For Murph. It's because of my extreme height, Ken. Alex yeah. Ferguson we're talking about here with... Uh, ordinary leading. ordinary table size, ordinary microphone stand size. But unfortunately, my extraordinary long back and neck yeah. mean that I need a little bit of extra leverage. That's where Alex Ferguson leading comes, comes in. in yeah. um, maybe, maybe it's because that's always there somewhere in my field of vision. I end up thinking about him. But how would he have reacted to this situation? You lose a match... Fergie, what's this? You lost 5 0 at Newcastle. Fergie, you lost 6 3 to Southampton. Weren't they sort of in the same week or something like that? Was there one after another? One after the other. Um, how would he have reacted? I wonder would he have done the Carlo Ancelotti and been, you know, I tried not to react impulsively and with aggression. <laughs> now, maybe he would, because in fairness, Ferguson was always quite good at managing up as well. Yeah. Although, you know, the Glazers are great. This is a great club. Why don't you go off and support Chelsea if you, you know? If you're not happy, that's he. He said that to a fan, so he managed down more harshly than he managed up. That's that's true, but but I do think it's very very difficult for any manager in that situation. See what, what Ancelotti was saying: the players could see the owners, the owner was on my case, and they started playing for me. You know what I mean? How often does that happen? I mean, sometimes you might get lucky, and the players might say, "Oh, we got to give the manager a bit of a dig out." We lads, we really need to get together and start doing a bit better for the manager. Half the time. More than half the time, I imagine, the players are thinking... Well, this guy's got... What's the point in impressing this guy? This he's going to be gone in three months. This is great. You know, he's going to be gone. Go uh, go Roman. Go owner. It's just... It makes it impossible, I think, for the manager. Like, the manager has to be... Well, in, in this, in the way in which we're kind of used to thinking of the job of the manager, the, the, that he's kind of got to be an authority figure. He's got to have sort of power over the players they've got to look at him and even if they don't like him they have to at least respect the ability that he has to you know he's got a certain amount of control over their careers and how things are going to go for them they've got to work for him you know what i mean in this situation where Abramovich is undermining them so blatantly uh it's it's impossible you, the greatest coach in the world would not be able to 
handle this situation? Could not work in these circumstances. Am I giving too much credit to Roman Abramovich by suggesting there's an outside possibility that maybe he got the reaction that he was looking for by going down and ripping the players and management? That he 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 says to himself, "I'll go down there. I'll be the bad guy. Me, Roman Abramovich, will take mm. on the role of the bad guy in this case and rip everyone to shreds." They'll all then row in together behind each other. The players will back the manager and they'll go and achieve loads of great results. I don't think so because, I mean, for instance, it, didn't, it certainly didn't work when they played against Man United. I, I think Man United beat them 3-1 at Stamford Bridge. Was it, I remember Ryan Giggs sort of running riot against Chelsea. Was it 3-1? Do you remember that? They, 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 Man United definitely beat them in the, in the Champions League quarterfinals. Um, the, the reaction was not forthcoming. Uh, the players know that in the worst case scenario, the manager is like the fuse in the circuit. You know, it's him that's going to be gone. Abramovich did say there's going to be huge changes to this team. Well, John Terry's still there, by the way. <laughs> and they Drogba, Drogba came back. Uh, you know, Lampard's not long gone. Yeah, so, you know, I don't know. I mean, I suppose there, there probably were a few changes. But, but uh, Anshadi analyzes this a little bit. He says, Abramovich... Um, uh, thought the management of the squad was not right. He thought that I was too kind in front of the players. He grew sure that it was causing something to go wrong within the group. He would try to convince me, with all my experience to the contrary, to be stronger, tougher, and more rigorous with the players. I've heard it before and I've heard it since, but he was wrong. They're all wrong. He says, what they hire me for is my ability to calm the situation at a club by building relationships with the players, which is one of my biggest strengths. At some later stage... That is not the approach they want anymore, and the relationship with the owners, not the players, but the owners, begins to worsen. They hire me to be kind and calm with the players. That's the first sign of trouble along the way. That's the very characteristic they point to as the problem. I know that if I'm winning, then it's because I'm calm. Equally, if I'm losing, it's because I'm calm. How can it be both? Um, yeah, I think I think it's interesting stuff. He also has a, a bit a contribution here from Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who is comparing. He, he obviously played for Ancelotti at, at Paris Saint Germain. Um, comparing Ancelotti with uh, Guardiola. Uh, Favourably, Mo- I would imagine. And Mourinho, yes. <laughs> Favourably. And actually, um, <clears throat> this reminds me a bit of what you were saying about Abramovic, uh, Owen. What Ibrahimovic says about Mourinho here. He says, I say Carlo was the best and I have worked with the best. So that's a big prize. He says, Con- to compare them, let me take you through them one by one. Mourinho is a disciplinarian. Everything with him is, is a mind game. He likes to manipulate. Such tricks were new for me. All the time doing one thing to get another thing. All the time triggering me. I like these games and it worked for me. I became top scorer under him and we won the league. So Mourinho constantly like trying to push buttons in an effort to get a response, which apparently ostensibly is unrelated to what he's saying. How exhausting must that get after a while? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of nervous exhaustion must that eventually cause in the players? You know, this guys are the lunatic why does he keep, why can't he just be straight with me why can't we just work together he's constantly trying to sort of nag me or, you know freak me out and then you know trying to get some kind of response but it's no wonder after a little while that the players always seem to be burnt out and ready for someone who's just going to come in and not like try to mess with their heads all the time but that's what Zatan says and Zatan uh, praises uh I went through a lot of adrenaline when I played for him. It's like nothing was ever good enough. He gave and he took. Jose Mourinho knows how to treat a footballer, but Carlo knows how to treat a person. And in this respect, Carlo is different from another big manager in European football. So that's for him, which just cannot stop putting the boot into Pep Guardiola. Any mention of the bald head? Doesn't mention the head this time. Doesn't mention the hair loss. Doesn't mention the big brain. I went to Pep Guardiola, the big brain in football. <laughs> 
he uh, and so this is like the core of his criticism of Guardiola seems to be that he doesn't let the players do it for themselves in a way. It's like he's too overbearing in his presence. He says he had all these solutions for every team we played against, knowing exactly what we needed to do to win, exactly how he wanted it achieved. We could be winning 2 0 at half time, but he'd say, We're not finished here. I won three, four, five, six, seven. He was like a machine. As a person, however, he was something else. I'm told I don't, I told you I don't judge a person if I don't know them. I base these opinions on what I went through with him. As a coach, he's fantastic. As a person, we didn't see eye to eye on many things. I wrote about our problems in my own book. It was like a school. We, the players, were the schoolboys. The type of environment doesn't suit me. It's like the idea is that Guardiola is almost telling them too much. And then if they win, who gets the credit? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, well, uh, once again, our genius manager has has seen the path, has plotted a, a course to victory uh, for us. And we, the players, have faithfully carried out the orders. But, like, what agency do we have there? Are we the ones who won the game, or is he? You know, that seems to be the, the thing that, that Ibrahimovic um, doesn't like. And I don't think he's the only one, actually, who feels that way. Although, to be honest, I think there are also plenty of players who would be pretty who would speak well of the time that they played with Pep Guardiola and all the trophies that they won. What about Ancelotti then? What's his well, he, assessment? He, he basically, nicer person than Guardiola, nicer person than Jose Mourinho. Just a nice person. <laughs> um, so that's, uh, that's that. And as I mentioned, that book is out in a few days. But Old Trafford? Have, yeah. So this, this whole disruption yesterday at Old Trafford. And, you know, one of the things that you, that you see when these kind of sudden security alerts happen, a big thing, you know, happens and as as happened yesterday, this match is called off. There is a sort of temptation to jump to conclusions about what's happening. You know, terrorism, it's, you know, who is it? You get people kind of talking about, well, it could be, you know, nominating the various groups who who might have some kind of a beef, who might be planting a bomb. Um, You know, the threat level from Republican dissidents was raised last week, you know. Um, does this fit with the sort of ISIS uh, MO? And of course, then it turns out, in fact, nobody has planted a bomb on this occasion, apart from a private security company who were carrying out an exercise and then forgot to unplant their the dummy bomb. Uh, and as a result of this, Manchester United's game was called off. Everybody could go home. A lot of people were understandably worried about what was going on. Um, United will apparently lose between three and four million pounds as a result because they refunded all the people who went to the game and will have to let them in free for the replay which is tomorrow so I wonder if I wonder what they're thinking about that I mean they, they just announced their record you know quarterly earnings uh, they've just had to lose four million pounds because somebody didn't clean up after themselves well depending on uh, just how rich this uh, training and security firm is I'd say they might be asking for some of that money back well, you know, it's always, it's always hard to know. I mean, the police were pointing out, this wasn't the police. This wasn't anything to do with us. We didn't leave that bomb around there. Of course, the police have done that before, it turns out. Um, it doesn't, uh, which we'll get to, but uh, apparently there, there's going to be increased security at the game against Bournemouth anyway. I mean, maybe there are kind of security questions there. So for instance, if there was a dummy bomb in the, in the toilet, how did nobody notice it before? Is that a security problem? The fact that apparently it was there for days, nobody noticed. And then it was only kind of when the stadium was already filling up the match. I mean, it was it was abandoned. The match was abandoned just after 3 p.m. It had already been kind of postponed at that stage. But there was a lot of people already in the stadium before this thing was 
was found. Yeah, I was quite struck by how calm everyone looked on TV anyway. I mean, you were saying about the about the supporters and all the rest of it. It, it seemed like, considering everything's gone on and, and the threat now, the fact that football matches are a genuine threat, mm. if, if I'm at that game, I'm, I'm seriously worried if I hear that this suspect device has been found. Obviously, the couple of the stands were emptied out, but the rest of them, everyone's sitting around. Apparently, there was a bit of a lack of information. They were just kind of told to stay in their seats. So, so I don't know why I necessarily be expecting mass panic or anything like that, but it did strike me that, that it all seemed... People were, p- people looked as though they were reacting reasonably. I mean, there's a picture in the front page of the sports section of the Irish Times here with this kid bawling, crying, and it, presumably his dad comforting him. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know if that's about about being scared or just about them coming to their only chance ever to see a Man United game and it getting called off. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if they if they would would be scared. I mean, I'm sure. I, I don't know to be honest. It's, it depends how much you know. Sometimes the more you know, the more scared you are. Uh, sometimes it's the opposite way around. Um, last night, I could see that Stan Collymore, Stan Collymore, who who was kind of, uh, who I think was the first person to sort of tweet about this, the nature of the device or kind of a description of it from from the per- as he said the person who had found it, was then unconvinced by this explanation that emerged later on that night that in fact it had been left there accidentally or someone had, you know, had left this thing there by. Oh no! We were supposed to clear it away. We were doing a training thing, and uh, this is, you know, this is embarrassing. And he uh, he was very skeptical about this. Uh, he said uh, he was saying nobody knew of Wednesday drill among stewards. Uh, number one, two, experienced company leaving this stuff behind and heightened security times. Three, every news outlet putting accidental narrative out without any questions. Four, police calming genuine fears with accidental line question mark. Wednesday to Sunday, Man United have no cleaners on site checking, cleaning, lose. Six, company left one rogue device but took the rest seven. Security company walks away from Old Trafford Wednesday without an inventory check and does nothing till Sunday till police check. Security company allowed at England's biggest club stadium without proper protocol to check inventory on leaving. Hmm. So what Collymore seemed to be suggesting here was that the police or, you know, the, the various parties to this had... Had come had concocted an explanation to cover up the fact that there was in fact a genuine, or at least a genuine hoax, if which is a subtle sort of a distinction, yeah. a genuine hoax threat, uh, which I have to say you um, don't buy. No, I mean he he he. Um, for instance, he then posted a link to uh, an article from 2014, uh, which was from the local paper in Wolverhampton. Uh, talking about how the club's uh, League One title triumph against Carlisle uh, was almost abandoned due to a bomb scare uh, after police officers, and in this case, police officers, which, as as I was saying, the police were at pains to point out it wasn't on this occasion, had mistakenly left the imitation explosive device in an executive box at Molyneux during an earlier training exercise. Terrified supporters discovered the device and raised the alarm, resulting in the executive areas of the Steve Bull stand being evacuated. Um, Police chiefs confirmed they have received an official complaint complaint about the incident. Uh, So you got the Wolves chief executive uh, complaining about that. Uh, The police commander for the match said, an imitation explosive device was found in an executive box that had been placed there during a training exercise. While the device posed no danger to anyone, we appreciate it may have caused concern for the supporters who found it. We apologise for any distress it caused. We received a complaint and we'll respond to this 
in due course, we will look into the incident and advise on any learning that may arise. <laughs> now, so there, there is a, an instance of, you know, just a classic piece of incompetence, you know. What I'm saying is that Stan Collymore seems to think it's unlikely that a security company could be so incompetent as to make a mistake. I think... I don't find that so implausible at all. Yeah, no, uh, and a, a lot of the reasons, when he lists out all those issues that he has, there seem to be three or four which are ex- essentially the same point. What, you mean they just left us there without doing inventory? Yeah, yeah, but then when he mentions, you know, when he starts bringing up all these other factors that you, you, maybe it is a little bit surprising that nobody else saw this between Wednesday and Friday, that, that I don't know, maybe so he's saying toilets aren't cleaned, I guess. If they're not used, maybe they're not clean. No, yeah. why would you? Why, why would you, you clean have people cleaning toilets that yeah. they're not used? I mean, this is a, this is a football stadium. There's a lot of toilets. You know, there's, there's a lot of areas of the stadium that are deserted yeah, from Manchester. That's a lot, of, a lot of a lot of manpower to use to clean, clean, to already clean toilets. You, you don't want a cl- serious clean freak on board of Man United. I mean, Captain Bly is is running the. I want the whole <laughs> stadium <laughs> scrubbed with vinegar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't know if, if it's like, but oftentimes in this case, um, what 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 usually happens when you know, there's, there's sort of a threat or, you know, a kind of a vague and indeterminate threat. Police are, and, and security forces generally are rarely accused of trying to minimize it. They're, it's usually the other way around. It's usually the threat is, see, we've, raised the, we, we've raised the threat from orange to red. Like it, any of this is supposed to mean anything to anyone. I mean, that, the language of that is just so absurd. I mean, it's Orwellian nearly. I mean, it it yeah. totally is. Red, orange, you know, it was green. Is, is that good? A good level of threat? Yeah. You know, but the, but, but generally speaking, you know, if, if you if you were kind of an authoritarian, um, you know, say you were some kind of, uh, you know, sitting in a smoky room somewhere, it doesn't matter. You don't have to obey the smoking rules mm. on smoking indoors in this room because you're so high up. That's the, the least government. of the laws we're breaking in this room. Um, and you're like, uh, okay, well, what what do we want? You know, if there's if the if there had actually been a, a real threat or somebody had planted a real hoax bomb. Mm. Not a real bomb, but a, but mm. actually tried to to put the match off by a hoax. Um, why are the police? Why would the police say something which made themselves look bad rather than my God, this threat is real. We're going to need a lot more police. Well, did they say? Did they say anything that made themselves look bad? No, I mean, but it made the security firm look bad, and actually it made their operation look pretty slick and and well executed. Yeah, but well, for instance, Collymore was using the wolves thing as an example. You know, as, a, as as an example, and that is a case of the police saying, "Well, we, yeah, we we screwed up there. Sorry about that." Now, if he was using the wolf thing as an example, oh, it's coincidences. This is a coincidence, isn't it? So, in that instance, that's an instance of the police apparently, by his logic, finding that somebody had planted a a hoax bomb, saying we mustn't let the truth about this get out because it would scare people. It might stop them going to football. Wolves' ticket receipts would suffer. We'd better take the blame for this one. And then, you know, if there is, if something like this does really happen down the road and if this ever gets out, I suppose we'll all go to jail for life. <laughs> you know, nevertheless, we better take that risk. We better put out there this fake story about us having left, you know, just to, just to calm people's fears. That's usually not the way that it works. If there is a, you know, if, if there is a threat like that, it tends to be magnified rather than diminished by the, by the official response. I think... But not everybody necessarily thinks the same way, I guess. We're going to talk to Oliver Kay, who was at Old Trafford, in just a few minutes, I think. Ken, where are you going now? Just a couple of other things. The England squad has kind of been announced, but it's not really It's not really a squad. It's a 26-man squad, so we still don't know who's going to be in the final squad. There were a couple of interesting points about it, though, which is that Roy Hodgson, 
who is a bit of a belt and braces manager, I think, has only picked has only picked three specialist centre halves of the team, and they are uh, Gary Cahill, mm-hmm. Chris Smalling, and John Stones. Yeah, you say dubiously. You're not sh- sure that John Stones will be well, just the rigors of European Championship. Football. John Stones is, is a is a very good player, but you know has obviously had a lot of problems this season. Um, you know, defensively. He's he's kind of the first, as far as I can make out, I, I assume it's going to be Smalling and Cahill, but he's kind of the first backup central defender. And maybe also Hodgson looks at him as somebody who can cover it in the fullback positions. Um, uh, I did a little England squad selector thing on the Telegraph website. I, I, I did. I actually did. No, you're doing it, Ken, so we don't have to. Yeah. And we thank you for that. And even thank I you for your p- service. Even I picked four central defenders. You know, I'm, I'm, I am more conservative than Roy Hodgson, apparently. <laughs> and, and I was only picking 23. He's got 26 here. So Phil Jones, I guess, is the man who might be feeling oh, disappointed to be left out. But he's... He's, he's in your squad. He was in my squad. Is Marcus Rashford in your squad? No, but Marcus Rashford is, is in this squad, although he will, I assume, be one of the three players who will be cut. And no Leighton Baines either. In which squad? In this twenty-six man Roy Hodgson <laughs> squad, I, I picked. Leighton I think Baines. for future reference, yeah, with the squad Hodgson, is Hodgson. the one that Roy Hodgson picked. No, no Michael Carrick. Although I did pick him in my own <laughs> squad. Um, no Michael Carrick. Really. No Michael Carrick. No, um, Jordan Henderson makes it, and Jack Wilshire makes it, and Andros Townsend. Andros Townsend. I find I find that very surprising. Although uh, we don't know yet whether he will obviously make the, the final. People were a little worried as to what might happen when Theo Walcott found out that he wouldn't make the squad. Uh-oh. <laughs> Mount Walcott is about to explode. But luckily, Theo Walcott has taken it with extreme good grace. And he said that he respects the decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I think he's at peace with it. At Roy Hodgson. Chat shit, get banged. <laughs> The Theo Walcott ver- verified account. So now he so so there you go again. I think people were expecting to be final squad, but it's not. Um, the final thing is we we mention we are going to talk about Tottenham and Newcastle, uh, which I'm who was who was up at St James's Park for that match. Pochettino afterwards, a broken man. Today we showed this wasn't a team that had played well throughout the whole season. It was my worst day as a manager in England or Spain. Benitez was talking to him afterwards, and Pochettino said it was strange. Newcastle were relegated. And he felt sorry for me. Uh, the it was as though all of the life force and energy had been sucked out of Mauricio Pochettino and made its way down through the clouds and sort of injected itself into the body of Arsene Wenger, who appeared to be literally ten feet tall as he was doing the interview. I don't know if it was a particularly short cameraman who was doing the interview, but Wenger was looming and high up, high up. You could see the biggest uh, smile on his oh, face. Oh, they were so happy! Even the way they were celebrating the, their goals was like it was ridiculous. <sighs> What are you? Come on, Giroud! I mean, that's just it's, that's just adding insult to injury. I thought when Giroud scores a hat trick, Giroud, by the way, was beating up on uh, a poor, uh, uh, <laughs> an unfortunate young Irish player, uh, Kevin Toner. Oh, okay. Uh, watch those goals and watch Villa's number forty-six. Oh, I saw the goals. I didn't realize it was an Irish guy. An eighteen-year-old. Irishman, a 19-year-old Irishman, sorry Owen, I should say, Kevin Toner, um, recently made his breakthrough to the Villa first team. A Meath man, uh, recently made his way into the into the Villa first team and had won some plaudits for his tough tackling, no-nonsense approach, because this is, a, this is a club that has had to put up with a lot of nonsense over the last 
you know, 38 matches mm-hmm. or so. And he was kicking a few guys up in the air and giving it a bit of, come on. And the supporters were like, that's it. We like to see a bit of passion. Good man, Kevin Toner. But he was playing against Olivier Giroud yesterday. It was a part of a three-man Villa central defense, a five-man Villa defense, realistically. Oh, my God, it didn't go well. Yeah, well, in fairness, he's 18 years of age. He'll be back, hopefully. Yeah, he's not, I, hopefully hopefully he will. But I suppose it does, it, you know, we, we maybe we slag off Giroud a little bit. I mean, because he is a guy who repeatedly has led Arsenal down in the important matches. He's always good for a hat-trick against Aston Villa when it doesn't matter anymore. He is always good for that. And you could see the quality of the movement of... I mean, he was the, he did it to Mangala, in fairness, the other week as well. He's a much more experienced and expensive player than Kevin Toner. But just to see the... Um, just to see how, how a centre-forward against an opponent who he's totally outmatched... I was remind, actually I was reminded a bit of Ray Parler also has a book coming out. I don't know if you saw. I think he's written this book with Amy Lawrence. It's out now. I think. Yeah. But he talked about Stepanovs. Remember Igor Stepanovs at yeah, Arsenal. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and essentially Stepanovs came to train with Arsenal and all the Arsenal players because they knew that Martin Keown hated anyone who came into the club in his position. He just hated the idea that someone uh, and Stepanovs was like rubbish as far as they could see in the training session. But everyone was like. Uh, Stepanovs would get the ball and pass it, and they'd all be like, "Whoa, you know, oh, like, oh, great ball, great ball," and uh, you know, applauding and encouraging everything he did. And Keon is kind of sitting there, like watching this through narrowed eyes. Uh, and Wenger is sitting just in front of them as well. But all the players are like, "Oh, you know, this is great." Dennis Bergkamp is like, "Oh, go on, oh, this guy, you know, where'd you find this guy?" <laughs> and Keon is kind of like, "He's not that good." Um, and then they sort of they come in the next week and. Wenger has signed him or <laughs> Igor is there and Palace like what are you doing here and he goes I've got a, I've got a contract <laughs> I've got like a three year contract and, and and he's thinking oh my god like and we were only joking yeah basically we were only joking but Wenger thought we were serious when Arsene Wenger hears Dennis Bergkamp raving <laughs> raving about a central defender he's like well, I'm going to trust Dennis here. Yep. And so Stepanov's ended up playing against Man United at Old Trafford. You know, people people were injured. Stepanov's, they're, they're, they're 5-0 or 5-1 down, I think, for half time. And and Parler says they're coming off the field and Dwight York, ter, uh, Dwight York, who I think had scored a hat-trick in the first half, turns to Parler saying, where did you get that guy? Like, <laughs> What's that got to do with Giroud? Just, just the, uh, to, you know, sometimes you get a situation in a, in a game, usually the, the gaps in quality aren't really that big, even so, between yeah, the yeah. good players and, and bad ones. But on that occasion, Giroud was really beating up on, on a young Mead man. Bit of a baptism of fire. Let's hope he comes back stronger from this. Let's wrap the report on sport. Just a crying big baby. But you cannot call it a player, a baby. What? And we never said they are baby. It's just a crying big baby. We cannot call a player a baby.
Oliver Kay was at Old Trafford to witness the drama yesterday. Oliver, what was the, uh, I suppose, what was the atmosphere around the ground like as events were unfolding? Um, well, I was in the, I was in the press room and, and just sort of making, um, you know, I think I was getting a coffee to take outside into the press box when um, when uh, this sort of security announcement was was made, a code red and um, and this kind of thing, and it's. It suddenly made you think, oh, God, what, 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 what's, what's going on here? Uh, but it said, Code Red, please remain seated. And I thought, OK. So uh didn't panic. Um, but then it came out that, that two of the stands were being evacuated, not not our stand. Um, and that, um, and then very soon afterwards, that, that the match had been, uh, had been called off. And you're just thinking, well... We were being told it was safe to to stay in in, in our stand because this suspect package was um, was in the uh, sort of opposite opposite stand of the north east quadrant of the of the ground, uh, but it was all um, no north northwest quadrant wasn't it? Um, but it, but it also um, but it, it just seemed quite bizarre the whole thing. It was it was all very calm and controlled the way they evacuated the ground. There was no sort of screaming and and, and people feeling unsafe. I, I'd say that the um, the club and the security people deserve a, a, a lot of credit for, for the way they evacuated the ground. But as it um, transpired subsequently, probably not so much credit for the fact that this um, training device was was still there in the first place. When did it actually emerge that that, that this whole thing had been a monumental cock-up? <laughs> about um, about. Nine o'clock. I heard the first rumours that it may have been uh, a sort of security blunder uh, and something left behind following a, a training exercise that, uh, um, during the week. Um, and to be honest, there were so many rumours flying around um, about what it was and what it wasn't. Um, and uh, at, at that point, I just sort of thought, well, I'll, I'll mark that down as another rumour, but I'll, I'll, I'll. To put that to people when I, when I speak to them, um, and then suddenly it came out that yes, this was the case that, that an external um, security company had, had come in to do this training exercise um, in a week, that they'd um, left a device there, so you know, so as to, um, you know, to, to, to facilitate this exercise and, and show people what what they must do in the event of um, uh, a security, you know, a bomb scare, and uh, and subsequently left it there. Uh, by mistake, and um, and therefore there had been a bomb scare, and it's just I don't know, it's, it's just baffling that, that that should happen. I've seen a lot of people blaming Man United for it. I've seen a lot of people saying that there was some bizarre conspiracy theory about oh United deliberately did this so that they would know what they had to do to beat Bournemouth. Now I'm sorry, no, they had to beat Bournemouth anyway. Um, it's nothing to do with that. Um, it's just well. Um, aside, uh, aside from that, I think, yeah, yeah uh, that's that's one of the all-time great conspiracy theories. Really, that Manchester United would go to that length and potentially, um, you know, bring national security into question to try to get into the Champions League. That would have been that would have been a hell of a story. But is it, it was funny. I was watching this on um, on Sky Sports, and Graham Zunas kept saying, you know, we've got the best um, best security in the world here, best police, best people for keeping our, our citizens safe. And this is kind of a repeated mantra of his during during the time that it was assumed that th- there could have been a viable device there. Uh, now, as it turns out, well, it wasn't the, 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 the police's fault. I mean, this a private security for- firm had left it behind. But uh, sure, it's great that it turned out that this wasn't anything, um, that this wasn't actually anything viable. But 
does it raise question marks about uh, about that industry and about a mistake of that high profile that could be make, made? Yeah, it, uh, it doesn't. It's, it's obviously not my um, specialty. Security arrangements at, at, you know, outside um, security firms, but it, it, it's it does seem just bizarre that that kind of thing could happen. It seems it seems utterly inept that that, that, that kind of thing could happen, and um, I think the, the the fault lies with this security company. Um, it would seem, but but then you think in the in the lead up to. Um, the match, you'd think that the corridors and the toilets and so on would would have been swept, and and just to ensure that everything was safe um, um, by the match day. But by the time you're allowing seventy five thousand people into the ground, it's not one of those. I mean, it, it is one of those grounds where where you do feel that there is a, a strong, tight security operation when you go there. I mean, I, I had my bag checked. Um, twice on on the way in yesterday and i uh, that's always an inconvenience uh but i i, I was i always welcome that because it, it makes you feel safe um but it's it is just bizarre that this thing a was left in the first place and b that it wasn't picked up until um or wasn't spotted until um people were inside the stadium the fact that uh, um the whole evacuation proceeded really quite smoothly i think they've got they've obviously got something called operation code red Mm-hmm. Which was which was executed uh, uh, apparently quite efficiently yesterday, um, and nobody questioned the decision to call off the game once this uh, once the, the initial reason emerged. It was a case of well, of course, you know, everybody's, everybody's got to do that. Maybe it shows the extent to which um, you know there's, there wasn't really any hint of disbelief that something like this could be happening at Old Trafford. Maybe shows uh, the kind of extent of the fear that people. Uh, now live with the, the fact that a big football match like that people go well of course that that could be a target for somebody with a bomb I mean I, I don't know if people 20 years ago would have thought that way but it seems as though everybody does now no in the um, in the aftermath of um, 9-11 back in what was that 2001 there were often rumours that something like you know a, a big football match could be target, targeted at, that Old Trafford could be a target, and, and just kind of, you know that all those kind of worrying things. And I, I've I've always felt that that security has been tightened almost, almost not quite year on year, but it, but it's gone up several levels since then. It's now very normal to have your bag searched um, going into a going to a big Premier League ground. Um, not all of the grounds, but but the but the biggest ones, the ones that might feel more likely to be targeted, and. Um, I think since the, the Paris attacks back in, in November in particular, everything seems to have been ramped up again considerably. And um, I don't know, it, it didn't seem like, you know, there, there was a sense of bewilderment of, of what's going on um, yesterday because there were, well, there was a lack of answers at, at one stage, but it didn't seem that surprising or shocking in a way. It seemed like, um, yeah, I suppose nobody was all that surprised because this kind of thing had been um, rumoured or dreaded or feared for, for a while. Uh, it was, uh, obviously, the reaction would have been very different had it been you know, a, 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 a proper uh, terrorist uh, threat. But it, the, fact that, the fact that it was um, purely a, um, a trading device, I suppose, puts people's mind at, at rest, a, a, in terms of the fact that it was... Um, 
but it wasn't a terrorist threat, and B, in terms of the fact that it was uh, it was eventually picked up, although not anything like as early as it should have been. Obviously, this uh, disrupts the FA Cup preparations somewhat. Um, I'm sure they'll be able to to uh, work their way around that, particularly given that the game doesn't have any significance for Champions League qualification now, Oliver. But what about Van Hal himself and his position now? It's a question we've been asking for probably about seven months now, but is, will this be his, um, his final act now as Manchester United manager this last week? Uh, well, it should be, because it, it just isn't working. Um, and I'm sure I'm not alone in thinking that. I'm sure... Um, uh, I'm not alone in thinking that strongly for for, for some time. I, I just uh, you look at the past two seasons and an enormous amount of money has been spent, far more than United have ever spent, uh, partic- you know, particularly in the glazy years. Um, and it's been spent poorly, a lot of it, but less forgivable than that. The foot, the, well, the results have been really poor. The performances have been even worse. And I just don't really see a redeeming feature in, in Van Hal's United, apart from you could say Martial has, has, has shown quality. Um, and you could say that the, the emergence of some of the youngsters like Fossu Mensah and, and Rashford has, has been a, um, a silver lining in a, in a very dark cloud of the season. But, but you know, they, they will be favourites to win the FA Cup on, on Saturday. I'm sure if they do that, Van Hal will be uh, saying, oh, look, you know, not so bad after all, am I? But it has been bad. It has been really bad. And I'm, I'm a manager. Uh, no, I'm not a manager at all. It's terrible for there. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a journalist who, who always um, feels that managers should put more um, faith in the FA Cup and should prioritise trophies more than they should and shouldn't celebrate winning, you know, finishing the top four if they haven't, um, if they haven't won a trophy. But it's, but, if United do win that trophy, it, it doesn't really change anything. It's a great, it's a great thrill for the players and supporters on a day, but it does not disguise or gloss over the fact that it's been two years of really underwhelming football, really underwhelming results, and they just need to change. And, and I hope for their sake that they do. Yeah, I don't think many people are arguing the fact now. Listen, Oliver Kay, great stuff. Thank you. Thank you. You made an interesting comparison, Ken, in your Irish Times piece this morning between. Terrorism now, this kind well, this wasn't terrorism as it turns out, but the, the threat uh, of terrorism now at football games compared to 20 years ago, compared to Euro 96. Well, there was a huge terrorist attack during Euro 96 in one of the host cities when the IRA blew up Manchester with the biggest, the centre of Manchester, with the biggest uh, bomb ever set off in the UK it, that wasn't, you know, fired at them by the Germans. Um, you know, uh, this was obviously a massive... Ma- ma- I mean, there was 212 injuries, but there was no fatalities. Uh, the reason being that, you know, as was typical with those bombs, there was warnings beforehand. Now, I know that this is slightly dangerous territory to get into because clearly that there were fatalities, there were atrocities. People remember Warrington. People remember awful things that happened. But I do think there is a distinction in terms of, and I know, I mean, someone already tweeted me to say today saying, your article today, with the Stuart, the clip of Stuart Lee talking about the IRA gentleman terrorists, they were good British terrorists <laughs> with that sense of faith. They were, they were, uh, were they didn't want to be British, but they were. Uh, that sense of fair play, they didn't even, you know, not, not even a perfunctory warning. But it is, I, I do think that although that point is there to be made, I mean, killing is killing, there is also a difference between deliberately setting out to kill as many people as you can because that's the point of what you're trying to do 
and something else in which you you are you decide to play God and say, well, we're gonna we're gonna carry out an attack against what we deem to be a legitimate target. You know, the IRA. You can read their Green Book or whatever. You can have a look at their how they thought of themselves. You know, they thought of themselves as a military, you know, uh, you know, an army of military organization, but also. To a, you know, to a certain degree, we're respecting rules of war, you know, long-established rules of war. The idea of killing lots and lots of innocent people was never one that they really set out to do because it was thought that that was a... that would make you look bad. You know, they were obviously prepared to do it, and mm-hmm. they did it many times, but it was kind of, yes, we're prepared to accept that as an unfortunate consequence of the legitimate military operation we're carrying out, as opposed to, let's have a surprise attack where we kill as many people as possible. As you saw in in the case of um, of Paris uh, or in Brussels, um, ISIS aren't um, aren't falling ahead. Well, I mean that does make, in my opinion, this more frightening. Even though terrorism, you know, the twenty twenty years ago, terrorism was a, was a real threat. It was something that was actually happening. I mean, everyone just everyone we, everyone got worried yesterday about a a fake bomb that was left there in a training exercise for because people are worried about terrorism. You know what I mean? But the fact is that the the prospect of it happening is more frightening because now, if if there are mass deaths, it's not going to be because there was an accident. It's not going to be because well the wires were crossed, you know people were the the people were evacuated in the wrong direction. Uh, it will be because that was what that was what was the the intention of it, and that's I think why everybody is uh, is a little bit more worried, even though the the actual prospect of something happening is less probable now if anything than when you know there was this actual mainland bombing coming this thing was this was a real thing the ira uh, you know in the in the early 90s in britain were like we are going to try and carry out bombings on the uk mainland we are going to do it it's going to happen you can expect it uh, but this even though there is no such kind of explicit or stated or confirmed you know, war aim by an organization is nevertheless a little bit more frightening because of the randomness and because of the fact that mass deaths are the essential part of it. John Brown was at St. James Park to witness, John, the burgeoning love affair, I guess we could call it, between Rafa Benitez and Newcastle. Yes. Um, I'm just watching that game yesterday. I don't think Benitez could be more popular on Tyneside if he led them into uh, European football or something like that. Um uh, 90 minutes of fans singing Rafa's name throughout the game. Um, the standing ovation that him and his team received at the end of the match. And only later did I remember that they'd actually been relegated. So, um, in a season of of, of, uh, of utterly strange happenings, that might have topped a lot for me. Really? Because, I mean, I mean, Newcastle, it seems, what, what do you think is the basis of that? passionate love that's suddenly uh, grown up there towards Rafa Benitez is it simply the idea of having a vague a, a competent person in an important position at the club that has got the Newcastle fans so excited yeah I think so I mean yeah you I mean to, to, to develop that point a little bit I think Benitez is a manager who I think possesses as much gra- more gravitas than any of the managers they've had since well Kevin Keegan came back and before that Bobby Robson uh, you compare him to people like, I mean, Chris Hewton did a good job there, but um, people like him, uh, Alan Pardew, I mean, Steve McLaren was a, a charisma vacuum. and uh, But Benitez, in his own quiet, understated, sometimes obstructive way, 
there's a man who has standing in the game, has respect. And um, speak to the people around Newcastle. Um, he's managed to uh, make it a happier place for, for certainly for the media to deal with. Um, you know, they even do food back up at Newcastle, which Mike Ashley had uh, banned for a couple of years. Um, Sorry. Yeah, Mike actually stopped them uh, doing food for journalists because he thought it was an unnecessary expense. Now, okay, there may be many people out there that think it is an unnecessary expense, and you'd have to agree with them. But uh, all you could get was a glass of water when you were there. I wonder what kind of I wonder what kind of mood Mike Ashley would be in if he had to work for four hours without food, and then file a report on his experiences. Well, yes, I'm, I'm not sure that that's happened for quite some time. Um, for Mike Ashley, that is. Uh, <laughs> yes, so, you know, Benitez has, has been a breath of fresh air. Now, from from the outside, um, people will find that difficult to believe because Newcastle have been relegated and the team's performances, I mean, he has, I think, I think in, in, ten, in his nine or ten matches, uh, 13, 14 points, but there has been an improvement and there has been... A change. Um, if it, when I when I was signed up to do that game a couple of weeks ago, I thought that would be a game where I would turn up and there would be insurrection in the streets, and uh, you know, repeat of those scenes where a horse gets punched, um, and you know, the journalistically you think, well, there's going to be a lot to write about there, but and there was a lot to write about, but actually, it was this air of positivity. Um, when I was walking back through Newcastle last night, there were people singing Benitez's name in the street. It's amazing. He's not quite on the Kevin Keegan level, but he could reach Messiah's status. That's all. That's of course if he decides to stay. Yeah, and if he does decide to, but he is going to stay, isn't he? I mean, that's, they're they're the indications. Yes, I think there's a caveat to that, which is that um, he will stay unless he gets a better offer, um, and that's the big fear amongst. It would seem the hierarchy at the club, certainly among the supporters, certainly amongst the, the the journalists I was chatting to yesterday, who you know have to cover Newcastle next season, and having Benitez around will make things easier because there's a manager who has plenty to say and has that charisma. Um, but the, you know there there, are, there is talk of offers from China and Qatar. Those seem a little far fetched. Those type of things always fly around. There may be the odd Premier League club with a vacancy. Um, Maybe jobs in Spain, Valencia is the one that obviously comes to mind. Oh, Rafa, but, come on. Forget yeah, it, I mean, Rafa. Yeah, I mean, really it seems to me the problem here could be Rafa's, Rafa Benitez's own ambition is the, is the, is the, uh, could be what leads him astray here. Because, okay, he, so he said, he said, there's a quote from him yesterday. He says, my heart is telling me yes to stay. It's a great opportunity, city and club. My brain is saying to analyse what's going on. And his brain would tell him, Rafa, you started the season managing Real Madrid, who are now in the Champions League final. You are getting relegated to the championship. That's a step down. On the other hand, he started the season at a club where he was reviled uh, by you know everyone from the president down to the, the ball boys. And he's now at a club where the entire city thinks he's the best thing that's happened to it in 10 years. You know, if I was Rafa, I'd be thinking to myself, there are good aspects to this situation. You know, and and, and if he was to get Newcastle promoted, you know, immediately, uh, which I would say is, you know, it's, it's certainly within the bounds of possibility, um, he could be he could be sorted for the next five, six, seven to to the end of his life sort of period of his career. Yeah, he could be even more popular on Tyneside than he is on Merseyside, and he's pretty popular on Merseyside. I mean, the thing is, look at look at where he's been since he since he left Liverpool. 
Um, there was the job at Chelsea, um, and I still am uncomfortable with the way that Chelsea fans behaved around Benitez there because he was that he didn't deserve the way that he was treated there by the fans. Napoli, I mean, the, the, sto- the story that I heard about him at Napoli that he was living in a massive hotel but was the only resident of this hotel in Naples, like a sort of shining existence. Um, and then, of course, um, Real Madrid. And yeah, as you, as you say, Ken, uh, you know, the white hot pressure of being the manager there, uh, the manager that they don't want, um, the pressure of having Zidane Zidane sat, essentially waiting for your job. And yet Newcastle offers him a job to create a club in his own image. Um, and the fans would be happy to, for it to be created in Benitez's image because then they don't have to think so much about the Mike Ashley thing. For Mike Ashley, it's a winning deal because Rafa Benitez is taking the heat for him. Um, and, you know, if you were Benitez, for once you want to be adored in the same way that you were at Valencia, at Liverpool, after so many years as a, let's, 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 uh, maybe a, a mercenary, but, you know, uh, away from the family. I mean, he's only two hours away, two, two and a half hours, say, away from Liverpool. Uh, he's had use of the Mike Ashley helicopter to fly back to the Wirral. It all seems to fit for him. Yeah. He's 56 years old. He's a, you know, he, his time as a promising young manager is gone. Maybe it's time to set up home again. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this club is, is obviously a fixer-upper, uh, let's say, compared to uh, compared to the last one. But, you know, it could... It could plenty all, of potential. Uh, yeah. For a builder, sure. for a builder like Rafael Benitez, prides himself on being, this is the ideal... Well, I mean, maybe ideally you wouldn't have Mike Ashley as your chairman is, is the only thing. Uh, I mean, he does seem... Rafael's obviously very political. He can't resist the opportunity to engage in a little bit of intrigue. So... Uh, how, what do you think? Is he already using the popularity a little bit as leverage against the club? I mean, he seems to be saying, well, we all know we, we can see what the people want, but, you know, what do the club want? Undoubtedly so, yeah. I mean, you know, as you say, this is an, exper- well, he's an experienced manager. He, back in his Liverpool days, he constantly used that type of uh, backing from the fans to play himself up against Hicks and Gillette, the owners of that time at Liverpool. Um, he is... Yeah, a political animal. I mean, you know, for a guy who's you know often derided for being awkward and um, you know slightly uh, stilting in his conversation, um, the, the sort of send off that he gave himself yesterday when he left the pitch at Newcastle. I mean, that was like some sort of you know opera performer waving goodbye at the end of the show. So he, what, did he, he, what did he do? Because I haven't I haven't seen I didn't. Well, see you know, you just sort of you know blowing kisses in all directions. It was like you know. This is a man, you know, he, he's showbiz, he's box office. He knows that, he knows how to work it. And, you know, the Newcastle fans who have had a miserable, well, what is it, three or four years since Alan Pardew led them to fifth in the table, there's something to cling on to there. And, you know, Benitez, there are some, are they being manipulated? A little bit, maybe. But they're happy to be manipulated because Benitez is a credible manager and, and that would make a real difference to that club. Tottenham, meanwhile, John, (laughs) I don't even have to ask a question. You just uh, go with your train train of thought there. Well, just wow, really. Uh, You know, I just, okay, well, let's let's start with Maurizio Pochettino. Um, This is a guy who's uh, been praised all season for his coolness, his presence of character. In the second half, he just sat in his dugout. I mean, I was sat behind the dugout. He sat in his dugout. I th- I'm going to say the word sulking. It was sulking. He just looked as if he just could not 
believe what was going on in, on in front of him. Um, and he was really very angry afterwards and he dished it out to all his players, you know, apologising to family, wives, girlfriends, the fans especially. Yeah, I've never actually heard such a, a long list. A manager apologised to so many different groups of people. Uh, I mean, the apology after the defeat is a, is a well-known managerial tactic, but I've never heard him apologising to everyone in, in the Tottenham players' lives. But I, I wonder about this situation because uh, on the one hand, I can... I find it easy to excuse Tottenham in that obviously their their hearts and spirits were broken by you know the way that they lost out on the on the title and once you if you've been chasing that and suddenly that's gone it can be difficult to motivate yourself um on the other hand this does illustrate how difficult it's going to be for them next season because um they have to do all that work all over again they have to get themselves you know if if they if they find themselves in the position they were in this season they'll they'll have had an outstanding uh, season next year, but it's going to be really tough. It's it's not going to be an easy thing to uh, to to uh, find that motivation that they had over the last uh, couple of months again. Yeah, and I do think that the, the the collapse of the last couple of weeks has added an extra psychological barrier. I mean, this St Totteringham's Day nonsense that the Arsenal fans come up, come out with, they've got to live with that again. You know, twenty one years they've that they've had to live with it, and this was the year. And uh, you know, and just the fact that I mean, the fact that Arsenal came second in the league is a pretty damning indictment of the quality of the league. You have to say, uh, but this was this was the team Tottenham that so many people have been saying they have been the best team this season, and yet to collapse in that way raises questions against uh, the the fortitude of the players. Um, certainly raises questions against uh, Pochettino as a manager, and uh, I think he'll be very aware of that. Um, Tottenham became the Tottenham we all know and have you know lampooned for years. It's it's a shame for the club, um, who, who really looks to be going in the right direction. But yeah, another thing to overcome, um, and some other some other uh, forks in the road as well because we've got the new stadium thing coming up. We don't know. The talk is that they'll be spending a bit of time at Wembley over the next couple of years. The new stadium will be a drain on finances. Could there be the sense that this was their big chance and they blew it? And they blew it spectacularly, so spectacularly that they came third in a two-horse race. John Brown, thank you. Cheers, lads. Hold on a second. Were we talking about Rafa Benitez or James Brown there? Mr. Showbiz. (laughs) Uh, Rafa Benitez going around owning the stage. The yeah. stage will be his for the next three years. Well, he's strutted many stages on Rafa Benitez. He's been around the block a few times. And, yeah, maybe there is a... He has been accused of, of uh, sort of playing in the heartstrings of the fans a little bit, sort of using them as puppet strings. Um, but in this case, I think it is it is remarkable. I mean, the there is almost a, a desperation from Newcastle fans to see Benitez as like a, a messiah someone who can be a kind of bulwark against the incompetence and stupidity of the people who own the club and can actually, a serious football man who can run the team in a proper kind of a way and protect them against the further sort of depredations or, you know, that's that's what, what they see him as. Um, whether he, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of responsibility to carry and I think they probably have a slightly rose-tinted impression of what Rafa Benitez is actually like. You know, he's not like a magic man 
Uh, he is, though, a serious football manager. I think that he should stay there and try. I mean, this is a different challenge. He, he's, he's, he's had the exact opposite end of the game. As we mentioned, he was at Real Madrid at the start of the season. You know, he's, you can't get a, a bigger, more glamour club than Real Madrid. You can't be in a situation where you're managing, you know, more talented players on a bigger stage. Didn't work out. No, and it does seem like with Newcastle, if you have the fans on side, you're... 90% of the way there you mm. know, it, I know that's the case probably with a lot of clubs but particularly with Newcastle like Damien Duff goes there everyone, everywhere else Damien Duff was and when he was playing for Ireland he was always seen as the ultimate professional okay he had injuries at certain times of his career but was always a very well regarded professional and yet at Newcastle their impression of him was this sort of lazy money grabbing mm. sort of Judas type character and he talked about that in this interview with Graham Hunter it was impossible for him it was just impossible for him to uh, to win them over there, whereas if you're on the other side of that, so early on as Rafa Benitez is, mm. you can probably you're, you're giving yourself a certain amount of leeway there. Yeah, I'd say. if it's it's better to have one of those rational convictions in your favor than <laughs> that's, that's my point. Trip. Yeah, you wanted to mention Barcelona, their title triumph. Oh well, just uh, just I was looking at the, obviously they they won the Spanish league. It wasn't hugely surprising. All they needed to do was keep winning, and they did that. Um, Luis Suarez is the third player in history to score 40 goals. Pretty amazing achievement. You know, amazing might be stretching it, but there was no guarantee when he went there that he was going to fit in. Everyone was talking about how he'd have to fit in with... Well, with ask Real Madrid. Leo I mean, Messi and Real Madrid had signed him, then uh, they probably would have won the league yeah. this year. You know, mm. And they decided, for whatever reason, Suarez wasn't for them. I, thought I mean, the biting was probably a, a key part, but nevertheless. Well, it might maybe Suarez decided... Barcelona was the team for him. Um, I don't. I don't know exactly how the decision was made. It, it always seemed to be Real Madrid that were interested in him, and then he ended up going to Barcelona. But it, I think it probably worked out well for him. There was one interesting quirk of his scoring record this season, which I thought was really, um, uh, really interesting. He has scored twenty nine goals in the second half. Um, this the, just the number of second half goals that he scored would be enough to put him second in the top scorers. He outscored every every other player in every. 15-minute period of second half, you know, 45 to 60, 60 to 75, 75 to 90, 9, 9 and 11 goals in those periods. No other player comes close in any of those, which I think has to do with the fact that um, uh, as players get tired, Luis Suarez doesn't get tired. Right. Uh, he's still able to do Buzzing that. Wasn't around there. Uh, at the age of uh, 29, and long may he continue. That's uh, pretty much it for this show, I think. The GA Championship will be discussed in our second podcast today. And also, the well, we're in the middle of the Jordan Spieth-Rory McIlroy era. So why is it that Jason Day is by a mile the best golfer in the world? Rather inconvenient of him, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, this doesn't fit the narrative, Jason Day. Stop winning every tournament that you play in. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Kira. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Owen. Thank Thanks you, Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.